Hello there, and welcome to the eighth episode of Tatooine Table Flip, the podcast. I'm Jimmy, and this week I'll be talking about board game news, games I've played recently, and anything else that strikes my fancy. Speaking of strikes my fancy, the first thing I want to talk about this week is the new Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. I'll go spoiler-free for a bit, and then we'll move into spoilers. I'll also add a time code in the show notes in case any of you want to skip right to the game stuff. I'll also be reading out some of your tweets and emails concerning the new film. I'm dating myself here, but I am old enough to have seen episode 4 in theaters before it was episode 4. What I mean here is that on its original 1977 release, Star Wars Episode 4 A New Hope was simply titled Star Wars. The Episode 4 A New Hope bit was added later for one of the re-releases. Since that original release, I've consumed pretty much anything Star Wars related, so I hope you'll believe me when I say that I am a Star Wars fan through and through, and maybe take what I say here to heart. After the fiasco that was the prequel trilogy, I honestly thought I'd never see another Star Wars film in my lifetime, let alone one that was so divisive. There are no middle grounders over The Last Jedi. Everyone is firmly Team Love It or Team Hate It. And I am kind of shocked by this. The Phantom Menace was pretty divisive too, but not in the same way The Last Jedi seems to be. I mean, We've apparently got some Star Wars fans calling for the removal of The Last Jedi from Star Wars continuity, and further, I'm now hearing of death threats against Ryan Johnson. That boggles the mind, since it's coming from self-proclaimed Star Wars fans. He's up there, guys. You're making the rest of us look bad. Personally, I had a pretty big issue just as the movie started rolling. I stayed spoiler-free, but I could immediately feel the tonal shift they decided to take, and almost decided I wasn't going to like the film. I actually talked myself down and settled in to give it a go, and ended up really liking the direction they've taken, and ultimately I had a huge amount of fun and can't wait to see it again. In my opinion, it is very nearly a perfect Star Wars movie. However, I think this tonal shift that I and others like me enjoy so much is also what's driving the hate for The Last Jedi. Oh sure, I've heard myriad reasons why the film is quote-unquote bad, but none of these arguments really hold up. I feel what's happened is that everyone who's dismissing it as the worst Star Wars film likely got so bogged down with the new overall feel that they let a lot of things go right by them and consequently couldn't enjoy it. There's a lot of chatter about how no one hates Star Wars the way that Star Wars fans hate Star Wars. But I honestly don't think it's that simple. See, many of us are lifelong Star Wars fans, having been around, like I mentioned earlier, since the beginning. Others are relatively new. But it all comes down to what I feel is expectation. There was a lot of hypotheses flying around over the unanswered questions posed in The Force Awakens, and seemingly not a one of these was correct. And yeah, I said hypotheses. At the risk of pissing a bunch of you off, please learn the difference between a hypothesis and a theory. Anyway, the expectations were way out of whack. And besides taking my beloved Star Wars in a fantastic new direction tonally, the filmmakers also zigged when those posing the hypotheses thought they were going to zag. I know that sounds like a gross generalization, but there you are. 
I don't know that I can offer any kind of deep analysis here, and I'm going off the memory of a one-time viewing, but I feel like the movie tied up some of the questions from The Force Awakens quite nicely while setting us up grandly for Episode Nine. But hey, feel free to disagree with anything I say here, and I welcome any emails or tweets debating my stance. I only ask that you keep it civil, okay? I'm also very surprised with how various rights groups and those opposing them are trying to politicize The Last Jedi. I'm going to steer clear of that sort of thing here as it's usually a very deep well nobody on either side climbs out of, and those sorts of debates start to circle in on themselves. Star Wars is not real life, even though some would have us believe that the filmmakers were attempting to shoehorn some kind of real-world agenda into the movie. I think they simply follow the characters through with the arcs set before them in The Force Awakens. For instance, Poe Dameron. He is the ersatz Han Solo and starts the film coming off kind of goofy, which has been the biggest criticism I've seen leveled at the character. However, if you recall, he also started out in The Force Awakens with a pretty good joke, so his goofing on a certain character here isn't that much of a surprise, especially when we as the audience catch on to what he's actually doing. Other complaints have been that his arc goes nowhere and that he's written as a quote-unquote dumb guy, etc., I feel quite the opposite and would even go so far as to say he is one of the best written characters in the film. There's a moment I'll talk about in spoilers that was almost too subtle to catch and felt brilliant. Luke's arc ends in just about the best way his possibly could have, and Finn's character takes a right turn that I was wholly satisfied with, but does have dealings with a new character I felt did nothing for the film or his arc. Ray and Kylo have some pretty spectacular moments and come off finishing nicely. You know, now that I think on it, I'm starting to wonder if this isn't really just a fairly deep art film thinly veiled in a Star Wars wrapper. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to move into some spoilery territory here as I read out some tweets and emails sent in by my listeners. So here is your warning to skip to the time code listed in the show notes if you wish to remain spoiler free. Last warning. Three, two, one. Okay. Let's start with one from Andy on Twitter. He's at Andy Beta. And he says, I'm really conflicted. I love the plot, but it was so corny. I was eye-rolling hard. Some of the laughs were spot on. Do you think you got him? And some were terrible. BB-8 coin gun. Yeah, Andy, I like the humor, even though, yeah, some of it didn't land that well, no matter what, though, at least it's not Jar Jar stepping in poo or getting farted on by some critter. And I don't see it as corny, but instead as just being fun. Star Wars has been a little too serious for a little too long now. Thanks, Andy. Next, we have one from Shawnee Claus, who is at Dirty Cops Game on Twitter. And he says, I liked it, as did my daughters, ages 12 and 16. I enjoyed the comedic moments the ship designs, characters, and plots. I feel like some are forgetting what 4, 5, and 6 were like for kids and adults and can't see it from both sides. Thanks for that, Shiny Claws, and I wholeheartedly agree. Many of The Last Jedi's detractors have maybe lost a little bit of their inner child and can't find the fun here. This next one is from a pal of the show, Tony, who is at Bearded Rogue on Twitter. He writes... Possibly my favorite Star Wars movie ever. Whoa. <laughs> 
Uh, he goes on to say, the first time I have been genuinely surprised by the franchise since I first saw Empire as a kid. Wow, thanks, Tony. That's really great. Uh, high praise indeed. And you know what? I couldn't agree more. I wanted to add more, especially more of the negative ones that weren't anything political, but they seem to have been eaten by Twitter, and there was a really good rant by a guy at Facebook, but I didn't copy it and I can't find it now. Basically, though, most of the complaints, besides the ones directed specifically at Poe, have been things like the show wasn't written very well, or there was a lot of uh, telling, not showing, or the characters were all uh, completely different from how they were in The Force Awakens. It was a lot of that kind of stuff. And I don't know, I, I you know, people often very snarkily say, hey, did we watch the same movie? When you get arguments like that, but... Uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard to convince someone that something is different once they've seen it a specific way. They kind of get locked in on that. And so, you know, there's, I don't know, I really probably couldn't have added a lot of arguments either way that would have swayed them one way or the other. So finally, I'll just wrap this bit up by giving a shout out to two of my friends and friends of the show, Jeff and Kevin, who both said they really liked the movie. And I'm guessing Jeff maybe more than anyone that I probably know, including myself. All right, a little more out of me, and we'll get on to the game stuff. First off, Poe. I mentioned earlier that I feel he's the new Han Solo, and his growth over the course of the film here just bolsters that notion. He's clearly secretly afraid to lead, and just wants to be the man of action, as demonstrated by one of my favorite moments of his. During the announcement of their new leader of the Resistance, he tenses up, clearly thinking he'll be named, and lets out a sigh of relief when Holdo is actually announced. Now, despite this, their roles actually get reversed later when her plan effectively fails, and she gets a lot of folks killed. But Poe steps right up to lead, and she becomes the action pilot, blowing things up in one of the most spectacular explosions I have seen in any of the Star Wars films. Luke has a couple of nice callbacks, seeing the twin sons just before he passes into the Force, and thereby legend, and his conversation with Yoda was really kind of heartbreaking, despite the dodgy puppet this time around. As an aside, I, I don't get why after all this time they've not locked down a look for Yoda yet. I love that he explains that he'd gone there to die, and that he wasn't the Luke Skywalker the universe has made him out to be. Ray has some really great moments following Luke incredulously during his day-to-day, -day, and I felt that really mirrored Luke and Yoda from Empire very well. I would have liked to have seen a little more of the sort of crazy look we saw after he took a drink of the critter's milk, and Ray literally falling to the dark side and coming out through was both confusing and deeply satisfying. Finn becomes the comic relief of this episode, but it's mostly handled very well and gives him another glimpse into a larger universe, one he realized in The Force Awakens that he actually knew little about outside of Imperial dealings. Unfortunately, he was also saddled with the task of introducing a character I felt was little more than an exposition machine for Finn, and that was Rose. Setting her up as a potential love interest came off a little weird, too. I don't know, I think I'll leave that one for now. Kylo is the character I liked the most in The Force Awakens, as he was the most interesting, but is the character I liked least here. 
He just felt so inconsistent. Also, the death of Snoke seemingly didn't phase him much, so I have to kind of wonder if that guy is really dead. I'm just wondering how they can set Kylo up to be the big bad when he feels so ineffectual. I did like how Kylo and Rey were becoming more and more connected through the Force, whether that was Snoke's doing or not, and those were some of my favorite moments in the film. In a very nearly throwaway line that foreshadows Luke's super Force ghost power later, he even tells Rey during one of their mergings that she couldn't be doing it because it would then kill her. Through all of their merging, I've become convinced that Kylo lied to her after all about her parents and that the two are actually siblings. I'm going to have to leave off here. I started wanting to say a few things and it really sort of got away from me. Maybe I'll discuss it more in the next episode after I've had the chance to see it a few more times. Overall, this is, I feel, the best Star Wars movie to date, followed closely by Empire. We have the solo movie coming soon, and then episode 9 before you know it. What a time to be alive. And now, let's jump into the news. Okay, if you skip the Star Wars stuff, welcome back. There's simply too much news, so let's get on with it. Otis has received a set of solo rules that you can download from the SDevium Games website. I'm still waiting on my copy to arrive, so I haven't gotten to play it yet, but I'm really excited to be able to get it to the table solo as soon as possible. Clank in Space has gained a solo campaign via the companion app, in which you play through the multi-scenario campaign to defeat Lord Eraticus. I had a chance to play Clank in Space just here a few days ago. I'll talk about it a little bit later in the episode, but I don't actually own it myself. I own the original recipe Clank, and now I'm kind of looking at probably picking up Clank in Space as well. Eric Lang and Antoine Bauza have teamed up on a game that was announced just about a bajillion years ago, and it's finally about to see the light of day. It's called Victorian Masterminds, and it sees you and your friends become supervillains in the wake of Sherlock Holmes' death. Set for release in 2018, I am super interested in this one, and I am going to be watching closely for any more details that I will then share with you guys. The Imperial Cycle at one Dynasty pack a week for the Legend of the Five Rings LCG has finally come to a close. Yet, as is usual for FFG, a new pack style has already been announced. Disciples of the Void is the first and is a departure from the normal Dynasty pack in that this is a clan pack focusing on the Phoenix clan. This thing is massive, with nearly 80 cards and introduces the highest cost character to the game. I am super interested to see where this thing takes us. Star Wars Destiny has had a special limited holiday release with the new Rivals draft set. So you need five others for a draft, and each must have their own draft pack. I like the game, but I bought the two-player starter specifically to treat it as its own game, as you guys have heard me talk about in earlier episodes. I don't plan on jumping down this particular hole again, and also I don't think that I even know five people who play Destiny. WizKids, under their new agreement with Games Workshop, has announced the first in the line of new Warhammer-themed games, and just as I figured, as likely did all of you, when they said a dice game was coming, it is, of course, 
I thought, going to fall under the Dice Master system. And sure enough, it is a big box set titled uh, The Battle for Ultramar, I think. Oh, shoot, I, I didn't write it. Sorry, I didn't write it down and I don't have it in front of me. But it comes with two factions for head-to-head -head play, the Space Marines and, wow, this news is going great because I don't have that bit written down either. But it includes all of the cards and dice needed for both. There's also going to be uh, two expansions released for it. One is the Space Wolves, and the other one is the Orcs, but neither of those are playable separately. You're going to need this base set to play, and everything is completely compatible with all of the other Dice Master sets. I was really into Dice Masters when they first started and collected and played for a long time, but it's a CCG model and quickly outpaced me. And even though it's a great, super fun system, I ended up having to sell it all off as I just couldn't keep up. Okay, one last one, and we'll wrap this segment up. Disney bought parts of Fox for $52 billion. Holy cow. Now they own a massive list of films and TV shows, and it's possible that the X-Men can show up in the MCU and that we can all use the word mutant when talking about any Marvel characters and... <sighs> Oh, it'll be cool to see the X-Men turn up in Infinity War 2 or whatever that one's going to be called. But other than that, ooh, wow, I I don't have any other information this time, but this is one I'm going to be watching because man, oh man, have I been waiting for something like this to happen. Whew, huh, okay, I'm a bit worn out after all that. How about we uh, just get on to some of the games I've played this week? Imperial Assault the App. Likely by now you're getting tired of me hearing go on about it, but I'm still gonna. I finished the normal version of the campaign and have restarted in hard mode and immediately noticed a few new encounters scattered here and there with an opportunity to gain some of the other allies. One of my friends told me he's seen encounters for all allies from the base set except for one, and I won't say who that one is. <laughs> I simply cannot wait for more adventures to be added to the app. It has absolutely breathed new life into this game. I've also dived back into Fallout a few times solo and love it more each time I play it. As you've heard me say in a previous episode, I am not a fan of the video game necessarily, but I'm really digging the board game. I'm seeing it pop up available again here and there, so if you happen upon it, you probably should grab it. Because of a comment made the other night during a game I'll talk about in just a second, I dragged Tiny Epic Kingdoms out of storage and have been rereading the rules with the intent to get some games in again. I know this is games I've played, but I thought I'd bring it up anyway as I'm going to dig into it ASAP. One I finally got to play at a game group the other night is Clank in Space. I own the original Clank and love playing it both with my friends and solo being the app. This one blew me away. They took all of the good things that made the original so good, bolted on even better stuff, and gave us a gift we didn't even know we wanted. And good lord, the references. Some really deep cuts there, and I pretty much just laughed all the way through it. It is a fantastic version of the game. Recently, I picked up the expansion to the card game The Grizzled, called At Your Orders, which allows for solo play. But about halfway through, I found it really too depressing. I'm going to have to revisit it later when I think I can withstand the mood. 
Beautiful art on the cards, though. I started learning the solo mode of Conquest of Planet Earth, and I managed to get one game in, but I genuinely think it'll play better with other players. I'm going to try it again solo, but it really didn't do that much for me. And finally, the big one I got to play just a few days ago is an advanced copy of Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, and oh sweet baby, what a fantastic game. This one has had a bit of controversial life, as way back when it first went to Kickstarter, the price was deemed too high by the community, if I remember correctly, for what was uh, contained in the box, and they withdrew it. Shortly after, I kind of lost interest and sort of forgot about it, but apparently it returned to Kickstarter and completely funded, and I had no idea. A few days ago, a fellow reviewer, Jonathan Liu of Geek Dad, invited us over to play his advanced review copy, and I didn't want to leave without it. It's a 4X game, Explore, Expand, Exploit, and Exterminate, a genre I'm not too keen on, but wow did I enjoy that game, and I can't wait until it's widely available. You take up a faction, I played the undead against lizard folk, elves, lion folk, and goblins, and start by expanding into your surrounding territory. You gather resources and build, 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 all the while recruiting new serfs to do your bidding. We played on a specialty neoprene map that was huge, and while at first the map felt really expansive, it got real small real fast as everyone started ranging further and further from home. Each faction has a specialty, and consequently the game helps you focus on a playstyle right out of the gate. There's a bit of bookkeeping involved, as your faction has myriad powers at their command that scales as you raise the level of your home castle, so it took me a few turns to really get a grip on the synergy between all of my abilities. You also need to pay careful attention to what all of the other opponents are doing on their turns, so you're always engaged in the game. There's really no analysis paralysis either, as you spend everyone else's turn either planning yours or quote-unquote following their actions to take the same action yourself out of turn. This leads to little downtime between turns, and following is, I think, my favorite mechanic. And then there's the minis. Standard plastic minis for the workers, fighters, and the three big bads of each faction, all fairly detailed at a decent level, and your castle, towers, boat, and airship are all made out of a very sturdy, slot-together, fold-up punchboard. With the map and other components on the table, this game is absolutely gorgeous. While we were playing, I found that there was also, while not necessarily always a lot of interaction, there were always, at every point in your turn, interesting decisions to make that could affect the long view uh, for your faction within the game. And just about the time I was really getting mine rolling, the game ended. One of the other players had built all of our towers, and that was one of the conditions that kick off the endgame. So we finished the round, and since I was uh, that, that round's first player, <laughs> the round came back to me, and then the game was finished. I didn't really get to do what my faction was meant to do. I want to thank Jonathan Liu of Geek Dad for hosting the game. It was a fantastic night, and I can't wait to play that one again, and I'm going to be grabbing it just as soon as it becomes widely available. Now it's time for a segment I like to call Top 10 Whatever Games of All Time until next week. This week is the Top 10 Small Box Games of All Time. 
Until next week. At number 10 from Sixpence Games, we have Professor Pugnacious's Portfolio of Perils, Pugilism, and Perfidy. And yes, that is the title. A steampunk deck-building game of gothic horrors and the heroes who fight them, you and your friends compete to take up arms alongside the infamous Percival Pugnacious and try to sabotage each other's efforts to graduate his training. It's a lot of fun, but one thing bugs me about the game, and that's why it's at the bottom of the list. The Circle. See, unlike every other deck builder on the planet that lays out just one row of cards as its market, this one lays out a row of five in front of each player. And they rotate. It's just way too fiddly and grinds the game nearly to a halt every time you have to rotate or otherwise adjust the circle. At number 9, I have Car Wars from Steve Jackson Games. If this one didn't take up the real estate that it does, and that's because the map is pretty big, then this reprint of the classic would be perfect for playing anywhere at any time. You and your friends outfit your cars with armor and weapons and prepare to engage in one of the most brutal forms of smash-em-up derby to ever see the light of day. It's a light but incredibly cool simulator as you have to contend not only with being shot at or blown up, but with more mundane things like tires that wear out or possibly blowing your engine. I've been playing this one since I was a kid and I love every session that I've ever had. At number eight, I have Tides of Madness from Portal Games. This one is a Cthulhu-themed drafting and set collection game that plays fast and furious and can be maddeningly, see what I did there, frustrating. My first time playing this was an absolute surprise joy and we went on to play it repeatedly the rest of the evening. Nice little bit of light strategy sprinkled in for good measure as well. It's just a really cool game. At number seven, I have Dungeoneer from Atlas Games. This one is a cool little card-driven dungeon crawler in which everything you and your friends need is included all in one deck. Dungeon tiles, hero cards, counters, etc. All of it. You lay the cards out as you go forming the dungeon and make skill checks and fight monsters along the way. It has pretty tight gameplay with loads of expansions. It settles this far down the list because it can be a little daunting to new players. At number six, I have Star Realms from White Wizard Games. This is a sweet little deck-building space battle game that is so portable you can literally carry it in your pocket. You and a friend build your fleets and outposts and simply try to destroy each other's stuff. It's fast, easy to learn and teach. I drag this one with me pretty much wherever I go. There's about a bajillion expansions for it too, so replayability is just way off the charts. At number five, I have One Deck Dungeon from Asmadi Games. This one is a relatively recent addition to my collection, and I can totally see what all the hype was about. However, its brightly burning arc across the sky of the board game hobby has seemingly dimmed quite a bit. I still get it to the table from time to time as I enjoy it so much and love a good dungeon crawler. This one is all cards and dice and is nearly an RPG in a box. I really love it. At number four, I have Warhammer 40k Space Hulk Death Angel from Fantasy Flight Games. Now, sadly, this one is out of print, so I suggest grabbing a copy if you see it. Of course, don't get bit by a scalper, as there's plenty of copies out there for a decent price. 
You've heard me talk about this one before, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's a fantastically brutal game that offers the most fun you will ever have losing. Fully co-op, so it's also soloable, you and your friends take on the mantle of space marines tasked with exploring a space hulk, a huge ship floating in space, and clearing off any alien threat. All I'll say here is that you will grow to hate that little red die almost as much as it hates you. At number three, I have The Lost Expedition from Osprey Games. Also making a repeat appearance is the programmable orders card game that has you and your team searching for the lost city of Z. It's a rough one and your teammates will die, but you only need one survivor to see the trek through. Another game that I enjoy losing as much as winning. At number two, I have Sheep and Thief from Japan Brand. Not just number two here, but in my top three small box games of all time period. It's so light and silly and fun that teaching is a breeze and no one I've shown the game to has ever been put off or bored. You and a friend are herders attempting to get your sheep across your board before the thieves grab them, all while laying tiles as you attempt to complete a path from one village or town to another. It's fast, it's a blast to play, and can be set up and played very nearly anywhere. My copy is the original Japanese version, titled Hitsuchi to Doboro, but I believe it's had a US reprint as well, so it should be fairly easy to find. At number one, I have Tiny Epic Galaxies from Gamelin Games, and oh sweet baby, the amount of game packed into this tiny little box. For those of you unfamiliar with the tiny epic series of games, designer Skalt, Alms, and Gamelin Games have taken it upon themselves to shrink down and strip down the modern Euro game and stuff them into boxes roughly the size of a paperback book. In tiny epic galaxies, you and a friend play competing, you guessed it, galaxies as you build your fleets and range out into the black. Along the way, you'll chance a bit of luck as you roll dice to gain resources and attempt to colonize planets as you gain their tech. There's also a bit more to it than that, of course, but the game also includes one of the best designed solo AIs I have ever played against. The game scales really well, especially the solo mode, and once you've got your head around the rules, it plays pretty quickly. With the available expansions, the game has a ton of replayability also. Excellent for taking around to a pub, since it doesn't require much real estate. The game is easy to teach and simply loads of fun to play. Whew. Well, I think that'll just about do it for this week. Hey guys, this podcast is a companion piece to my YouTube board game show, Tatooine Table Flip, where I give reviews and unboxings of some really great games. The episodes are all ad-free, and if you like the show, please subscribe and tell all of your friends. I also invite you to become a producer of both this podcast and the review show by visiting my Patreon page, located at patreon.com slash tatooinetableflip. Help us keep the lights on by supporting the shows, with every bit of support feeding back into the programs, enabling me to bring you more and more content. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review and or a rating, as it, it will really help folks find the show easier, and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. You can find Tatooine Table Flip the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can find me online at BoardGamerBlues.com, 
or on Twitter and Facebook at BoardGamerBlues. Or, if you like, you can email me directly at J-I-M-M-I-E at BoardGamerBlues.com. That's going to do it, guys. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and I will see you next week. Bye!